welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, the separation of church and state. It's in the U.S. Constitution, right? Well, actually, no. The Constitution does prohibit government from establishing a religion, but the famous word separation of church and state came instead from a famous letter, a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a religious organization in Danbury. Here to tell the fascinating story is historian Bill Devlin, author of several books about Danbury's history, We Crowned Them All, and Danbury's Third Century. And now, how Danbury helped separate church and states. It's a very common misconception. In fact, it's a mistake I've made myself. I was always under the impression that the wording separation of church and state came from the U.S. Constitution. It does not. It comes close, but those actual words, words that we've all heard and know so well, do not appear in the great documents. The very first line of Amendment 1 to the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free expression thereof. Now, that's pretty clear, and the amendment does mention such iconic rights as freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to petition the government, and the right to assemble peacefully, but not separation of church and states. The Constitution was finished on September 17, 1787, when most of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention signed the document, 39 of the 55 who were present, or 71%. Most of those who did not sign were upset that the Bill of Rights was not also included. Well, two years after the Constitution was approved in September of 1789, the very first Congress had been elected and had met, and they voted to suggest to the states the first 12 amendments to the Constitution, better known as the Bill of Rights. And while those amendments were approved by the new states, it would take another two decades for the words separation of church and state to be committed to paper. And Danbury played an unusually central role in that story. It was that First Amendment that talked about not establishing a religion. After all, it was the entire reason why the Puritans fled England to come to the United States in the first place, to escape religious persecution at the hands of the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. They didn't want to have a primary religion, as had existed in their old country. Or did they? Historian Bill Devlin of New Milford says that to understand the importance of the separation of church and state issue in the young United States, one must also understand why it was even necessary to spell it out in this new country that was fleeing, essentially, state-sponsored religion. Well, it begins, he says, by understanding who settled Connecticut in the early 1600s, the followers of Thomas Hooker. Hooker had been born in England in the late 1500s. When he came with the other Puritans to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he had a disagreement with the leadership, and he decided to move south. His followers came with him. Some of them had different opinions and their own followings and that kind of thing, but they were all of a single mind. And they wanted to establish a, you know, basically a religious utopia. The religious utopia wasn't necessarily looking for more ways to have open religious freedom. Rather, it was designed to support 
like-minded people. It's a Puritan commonwealth. It's for these people and by these people, you know, and that's it. A commonwealth is a settlement formed for the common good of the people in it. In fact, four states still refer to themselves as commonwealths, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Virginia. Now, in Connecticut's case, the common good at that time was meant to mean you thought the same way. As Connecticut formed, Hooker's earliest followers helped to form the mighty Congregational Church. The church dominated the landscape, both physically and in the mainstream of government, politics, and everyday society. Those stately, white-steepled Congregational Churches still dot the landscape of many a New England town green. Bill Devlin says that there were three basic parts to societal structure in the early days of Connecticut. Town government, they're the ones who passed and enforced all the laws. Proprietors, the corporate groups that owned the land after being granted that right from the state legislature. And the ecclesiastical society, or the members of the church. There was such overlap between those three factions that they were more or less acting like one large body. The church was involved in everything. In public schools, religion was taught openly. People, you know, would study the Bible in schools and because they're all using the same Bible. <laughs> there was no, nobody cared whether you're using the Douay Reims translation or the King James, you know, it was, there was all, this, all the same people. There weren't, there wasn't that kind of division. Congregational church was clearly the dominant religious faction and it bled into other aspects of society. It was the established church. It was supported by taxes, and you, you didn't have to belong to it, but if you didn't belong to it, you still had to pay taxes to help support it. The second largest denomination was the Anglican Church. While it would become the dominant religious order in the southern U.S. in the early days of the country, it still had a sizable following in the north. Bill says that Connecticut's government eventually got involved because the taxes clearly favored the Congregationalists over the Anglicans. At one point, the legislature relents a little bit and allows the Anglicans to um, have a little bit of support and not pay so much to the Congregational Church. The balance of religious power finally started to change after the hard-fought Revolutionary War had ended, particularly among two new groups. Baptists were making inroads, and then the Methodists make their appearance, first in Reading, and they start spreading out. However, Bill says that you can learn something important by studying the locations of the first Methodist and Baptist churches in Danbury. They're on the outskirts somewhere. They're like little outposts. So the, the meeting house for the Methodists is in Longridge area, you know, down by Reading in that area. The Baptists are up in King Street, you know, which is very remote. They were not building their churches in the city's downtown like the Congregationalists and Anglicans. Bill says they sort of felt like stepchildren. Job opportunities, bank loans, club memberships, and other aspects of normal society were often driven by what church you went to. But Bill says the Revolutionary War shook up American society in that respect. This is one of the things that the American Revolution changed, is people's thinking about who they were and what their rights were and what should be. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that it, kind of gets overlooked. This new movement toward challenging the status quo went way beyond religion and into the normal practices that had driven the new country for decades. This is when the anti-slavery movement began in earnest. It also stretched into the practice of apprenticeships. Why should I have to be in service to this guy for seven years? 
heck with that, you know? So that whole institution of apprenticeship fell off. Indentured servitude, meaning one person works for another contractually without pay for a certain number of years, also fell into disfavor after the Revolutionary War. In terms of religions, it was the Baptists, more than the Methodists, who expressed their displeasure, and they proactively pushed the basic principle that they wanted to be equal. They didn't want to be the established church, but they wanted they didn't want to have to be subservient to the established church. The way things were, they were like second-class citizens without basic rights or the proper status. They felt like anything that they got from the state, you know, which was dominated by the established church, was just like being granted to them by a by a higher power, which they didn't like. Put simply, the Baptists felt they were equal to any other religion. So they channeled their frustration and decided to write a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who had just recently been elected the third president of the United States. In that letter, it contained their grievances. They met in Danbury, and um, they were looking for some confirmation from, uh, from Jefferson that they, they, their search for equality with other churches would meet with some sympathy from him. Why Jefferson? Number one, he's president. And number two, because he had pushed the idea of religious freedom in Virginia. So on October 7th, 1801, the Danbury Baptist Convention signed their famous letter of grievances to Thomas Jefferson. The language is engrossing, dramatic, and compelling. In just one key part, such had been our laws and usages, and such still are. The religion is considered as the first object of legislation, and therefore, what religious privileges we enjoy as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of free men. In the final paragraph, they appeal directly to Jefferson's sensibilities. Our hopes are strong that the sediments of our beloved president, which have had such genial effect already, like the radiant beams of the sun, will shine and prevail through all these states and all the world, till hierarchy and tyranny be destroyed from the earth. Heady stuff. Well, as Bill Devlin notes, the strategy of targeting Jefferson with this appeal absolutely worked. He answers with the the letter which gives them that famous phrase of the wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson's letter, written on New Year's Day 1802, some 23 years after the Bill of Rights was adopted, contains this sentence. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the whole American people declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Later in a famous ruling by Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black, this venerable phrase was given even more weight. He called it an almost authoritative declaration of the Founders' intent behind the First Amendment's wording on religious freedoms. Alas, one final footnote on this from Bill Devlin's perspective. He says Danbury might be getting just a little bit too much credit for being the driving force behind the Baptists being at the forefront of this effort. The odd thing about this is it's always attributed to Danbury, but 
there's there's not much of Danbury in the Danbury Baptist Association. There's 26 churches, but most of them are in the Hudson Valley. And while Thomas Jefferson himself never actually visited the city of Danbury, his letter to the Danbury Baptist Convention, where the meeting of the 26 Baptist churches was held, did help put the city on the map about 225 years ago, and it helped Danbury separate church and states. it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, historian Bill Devlin of New Milford, author of We Crowned Them All and Danbury's Third Century, two excellent books on Danbury history. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. And in between episodes, feel free to drop me a line at either my Facebook or Instagram pages at Amazing Tales CT. If you like what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. Thank you.